Hello, and welcome back to Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you. I'm Adam, an English teacher who went to China in 2014 and taught English in a small city near Shanghai. This podcast tells the story of my troubled first year, so if you're new to the show, I'd encourage you to start at the beginning. That said, alongside the main story, many episodes focus much more on other issues about Chinese history and culture, and you don't really need to be following the story to listen to that part. Okay, on with the show. The hairy crab is a delicacy which has its moment in the sun in the autumn. Tie-dye orange, expensive, and inescapable after September, its name comes from the hairy gloves it wears. It is famed for the ability to live in polluted waters, not an insignificant skill when it comes to China, and the ability to turn grown men into lusty crab addicts, such as the allure that pen has been put to paper in its name. The 17th-century playwright Li Yu was unwilling. Or unable to hold back when he wrote, while my heart lusts after them and my mouth enjoys their delectable taste, and in my whole life there has not been a single day when I have forgotten them. I can't even begin to describe or make clear why I love them, why I adore their sweet taste, and why I can never forget them. Dear crab, dear crab, you and I, are we to be lifelong companions? The most highly prized hairy crabs come from Yongcheng Lake, one of the many blue blobs to the west of Shanghai. Here, many a local business has sprouted, each with their own personal mini pier restaurant. Everyone here for one thing and one thing only: crabs. Shanghainese spend handsomely, up to a hundred dollars per kilo, for the privilege of messily sucking out the innards of these crustaceans, using a variety of tools designed for attacking different parts of the hairy victim. This is the place of the best hairy crab, Lily was telling me. We were on her friend's pier restaurant, jetting into Yongcheng Lake. It being February, the crabs were not in season, and neither crab nor crab junkie were to be found. Instead, a group of smiley workers were pottering around doing various damp tasks. Lily continued, "The hairy crab here is so special, so tasty, that some faraway businesses pretend they are from here to sell at a high price." Enlightened to the content of our conversation, Lily's friend suddenly became animated, dancing around looking for, in lieu of the physical specimen, pictures of his authentic Yongcheng crabs. He was Liu, a youthful middle-aged man with extremely smiley eyes and a pride in his trade, which was etched into every wrinkle in his green dungarees. Yongcheng Lake and Tai Lake are the places for the best crab, Liu told me by way of Lily's translation. He went on. The water here is fresh and clean, and the hairy crab is the best. But some people, bad people, make the hairy crab somewhere else—in lakes, in ponds. Most people don't know the difference. Maybe they put them in Yongcheng Lake for a few days at the end, then sell high. Bad people, bad hairy crab, not good hairy crab, like my hairy crab. It's a scandal that has periodically rocked China's culinarily conscious society. To make matters worse. While the crabs are hardy where it comes to pollutants, the people that eat them are not, and polluted hairy crab is carcinogenic hairy crab. Not like my hairy crab," said Liu, flicking through his private crab photo collection. It was a chilled midwinter day, and my hosts, Lily and her husband, were wrapped up in Alibaba's premium family range of long brown jackets with fluffy hoods. Their son Rex. A scaled-down version of his father 
was in an equally dapper jacket, and was only recognisable as a child by the way he darted around the place. As we squinted over the glittering pale lake, I wished I had a similarly fluffy jacket, but I was as unprepared as ever for this trip to the countryside. Lily, esteemed teacher of all-girl art class number one, had invited me to her hometown for the Lantern Festival, the final showdown at the end of the Chinese New Year national holiday, during which the Chinese staff head back to their homes, joining the largest human migration in the world. I braved the creaking transportation system to get to the Philippines for a break, and wound up going to Lily's town for the Lantern Festival, which seemed like a win-win situation. Adam doesn't spend the holiday alone, and Lily's son gets extra English practice. In fact, I may not have been alone in the school. While it was true that my closest allies, Jess and Penny, were yet to return from their holidays, I could have probably sought out companionship from one of the other teachers. I had already bumped into one of them, Arizona man Don, on the running track. His family had stayed in Chongshu for the break. He told me how he'd been running every day, and reading every day, and lamented that he couldn't do both at the same time. I suggested audiobooks, pointing to his headphones. He just nodded and said, Led Zeppelin, brain food for the running man. Kelly and Ralph were still in America, visiting family, and preparing for Ralph's relocation to the States, and enjoying some decent food, at least from Kelly's perspective. This I had garnered from her WeChat posts, which mostly depicted a happy couple posing outside a restaurant, and then close-ups of various doomed foods. Penny was also in America, and Jess was in Canada, and she sent me an excited message on WeChat about some gloves she got. Dodie, the newest addition to the crew, lived in the city and hence was nowhere to be seen. But I was still trying to work the guy out, and didn't relish an unplanned encounter. I was especially eager to avoid being accosted by Mark in the hallway, dangling a blood-soaked copy of the Quran or a memorised tract about how Hillary Clinton is literally Satan. They had been on a trip to Thailand, and the occasional sardonic comment echoing through the teacher's residence suggested that they were back, and milling about hunting down feminists. So without unpacking, I went to Kunshan to see Lily and her family. After the crab tour, we went back to Coco's family home in Jingjiang, just across the mighty Yangtze River. Their home was the end part of a large stone terrace plonked into the dusty ground, with pale streets winding up to it, and the garden backed onto a thin river. I was to meet a family, and my mind cast back to a short viral video I saw on Chinese internet, depicting a Chinese family playing a humorous ruse on the daughter's American fiancé. Ignorant of the local customs, the American had been invited to dinner at the family home. Once there, he was greeted with a variety of local customs, which he had no choice but to assume were true. They included a seal-like hop, the traditional way of meeting a grandfather, and eating dinner with a faux Tai Chi squat. Eventually a man in a horse head emerged to explain that this, this isn't Chinese tradition, I just made it up. Cheap TV at its best. My guests were less cruel, which is nice, because I too was fairly ignorant of the traditions of visiting a family home. After brief introductions, I made do with standing around awkwardly while the family potted about in preparation for the evening. Any social faux pas I committed were happily explained away with the chuckles of the common phrase, Tingbudong, meaning, listen not understand. I didn't accept the men's offers of cigarettes, nor make any effort to help wash vegetables with the women, and as such, remained neutral, like a non-impressive oil painting which somehow changes location when you're not looking. 
I had evidently crashed an important gathering, as there were four generations and about ten people here. The room, which could be called a dining room but also looked like a garage, all chipped stone surfaces and dusty old rugs, had at the end a large, dark wooden cabinet with a red poster of the Chinese character Fu draped over it, denoting happiness and good fortune, the central message of this evening's Lantern Festival. The festival falls on the 15th day of the first lunar month, usually in what I would call February. The story goes that the Emperor Ming, during the Han Dynasty some 2,000 years ago, noticed that Buddhists were lighting lanterns on this day. Having a soft spot for Buddhism, the Emperor ordered everyone to follow suit. It's not the most compelling origin story, and thankfully it's not the only one. Others involve numerous gods and ancient warriors with their respective idiosyncrasies each with a reason or two to demand celebration at this time of year, and use lanterns in the process. One of the best involves the anger of a male god, the plucky decency of a female god, and the cunning of villages. A fine set of ingredients for any story. A crane flew down from heaven, so the story goes, and was killed by some villagers. This angered the Jade Emperor, who had a particular fondness for this particular bird. The Jade Emperor considered the selection of destructive powers at his disposal, he was a god after all, and decided on a reign of fire for the village for the 15th day of the month. Quite why there was a delay we don't know, but we can presume there are some logistical obstacles to organising a reign of fire on a village. Probably some paperwork to get done too. In the meantime, the Jade Emperor's daughter broke ranks and told the villagers of the coming onslaught, and one villager came up with a smart idea of lighting lanterns thereby making it look like the village was already on fire. Come the 15th, the troops, ready to rain down their fire, were duly tricked by the lanterns, and seeing an opportunity for a half day off work with full pay, returned to the heavens without a shot fired. The Jade Emperor bought it, and the tradition stuck. Afternoon snacks were laid on the round glass table, all cold meats and vegetables and steaming piles of rice and tangyuan, sweet dumplings, which are a pun on the word for reunion, tuanyuan, which is nice. Family members came and went from the table, delivering more food or doing other chores. A relentless TV show played on the wall-mounted TV, the Chinese import of the hugely successful Korean reality celebrity hit, Running Man. While little Rex gawped at the TV, absently slurping clear soup, I was gently interrogated about my reasons for coming to China my food preferences, and my marital status. The eldest man, grey and balding with dismissive features and something of a permanent scowl, was seated to my left. He would poke various dishes on the table, elbow me in the hip and say, Chur! or eat. Then, while I'm preoccupied by hoisting the chosen morsel into my bowl with the chopsticks, he'd top up my baijiu, my Chinese white wine, and, at the next available opportunity, propose a toast with a sharp, Lai! This ritual looped until the end of the meal, at which point I was dizzy with the dual poison of alcohol and repetition, heightened by the strange experience of being treated so well by someone evidently so grumpy. In terms of downing strong alcohol, the custom changes depending on who is doing the drinking and whether one is dining with family or colleagues. But generally, you toast each male individually, and the most respected partner will hold his glass higher when the glasses kiss. Occasionally, the more lowly of the two will actually reach his hand forward and push the other glass up to grant superiority to the other person. 
Ignorant of all of this at the time, I hadn't realised I was being treated to the soundtrack of clinking glasses, like a prince. Interestingly, when Nixon flew in to meet Mao in 1972, breaking 25 years of silence between the two nations, Premier Joe Enlai made sure to clink his glass at the same level as Nixon's. It would have meant nothing to Nixon, of course, but Joe wasn't going to be seen as a lesser to the American president. That was Joe Enlai for you, and if you've missed the episode about Mao's deputy, it's number 32, The Rising Sun. Anyway, back to the drinks. One excellent phrase to be deployed in this situation is, or, I'll finish my drink, you drink however much you wish. Depending on the situation, this can be a respectful gesture of consideration, i.e., don't push yourself, or an outright challenge. Whenever I've said it, the other drinker has tended to rise to the moment. Snacks were done, and it was time for a stroll with an uncle before the main feast. Here, and this grassy excuse for a village, the landscape was flat, but the world was small. An endless cloud sat upon us, as if we were spiders under a white cushion on a sofa. The land was colourless. The winter air had spent no energy on it. Here there grew corn, but the ground was just peppered with specks of green. Well, that's winter for you. Lily's family home was a rudimentary farm, chiefly comprised of three geese and five chickens. The geese in particular were having a hard time, coated in apparently a lifetime of dust. The animals all potted about amongst the sad grass and the gravel, occasionally popping back into their hut to see if anything was happening in there. We decided to do something about the dust, a bath in the river. After tying a rope to each goose leg, Lily launched them into the river and watched them flap about for a few minutes before hauling them out. The chickens looked on warily, perhaps noting how the geese came out less dusty, but more muddy. For one goose, the ordeal was too much to take. The shock of the cold river killed it. No CPR was given, no ambulance called. We looked down awkwardly at how our good intentions had gone awry. And as the story reached the rest of the family, nervous giggles began. Eventually, one of the aunties elbowed her way through us, grabbed the dead goose and bounced off towards the kitchen. It was a basic life which contrasted deeply with both the bustle of a small city like Changshu and the sterile marble of modern suburban privilege in which Lily spent the other half of her time in her apartment not too far away from the school. But village life doesn't have to be like this. China's, quote, richest village, the opulent Huaxi in Jiangying City, is just a little up the river. The village, famous for its gold-tipped, eight-story pagodas, is smugly self-aware, calling itself the number one village under the sky. And it has 2,000 villages, each of whom have at least 1 million yuan in wealth. That's some 100,000 pounds or so. Quite a sizable chunk for a rural villager. These families' possessions are publicly displayed, flaunted with much pride. Huashi is known as a model socialist village, proving once again that socialists aren't scared of money. The origin of the wealth is somewhat mysterious, with journalists not being allowed to talk to anyone. But alongside the textiles and steel which China has enthusiastically exported for heaps of cash, it probably has something to do with Wu Renbao, the one-time village secretary of the Communist Party. No matter whether it's a new kind of ism or an old kind of ism, our aim is to make everyone rich, Wu Renbao once said. Wu Renbao died in 2013 and left his son, Wu Xie'en, as the village chief, 
he was elected with 100% of the vote. Pretty good result. Huashi is so loaded that the village itself is the proud owner of a listed company, buying planes and ships, of which the villages themselves are the owners. The Daily Mail, ever the champion of alternatives to capitalism, wrote a wry article on the place, noting how you're given a car and a villa when you move in, but lose all your belongings when you leave. They refer to activists who claim that Wu Renbao owned 90% of Huashi's assets, and the villagers aren't allowed to withdraw their own cash, and when they do, they're only allowed to buy Huashi goods and stocks. Most strange of all, Huashi has a theme park of replicas of famous buildings, a fake Forbidden City, a fake Sydney Opera House, a fake Arc de Triomphe, and a fake section of a fake Great Wall of China. The Southern Weekly, an unusually outspoken newspaper from Guangzhou, did an expose in 2011, claiming that the Huashi leadership were able to pilfer the assets of surrounding villages for investment in their own assets. This would be on the back of tens of thousands of nearby villages and workers who produce the steel and the textiles, but are not part of the elite 2,000 Huashi villages. If Huashi is a symbol of the success that can be achieved under socialism with Chinese characteristics, then it's a strange one, seeing that the beneficiaries are so glaringly limited to such a small speck of land. Everyday rural life, away from this theme park village, is basic and cold, as that poor goose discovered, and as I found out later that evening. The Lantern Festival Gala is CCTV's closing spring festival ceremony. Bookending the festivities which begin with the New Year's Gala two weeks prior. The New Year's Gala is an event unto itself, with hosts and performers on show to more than 700 million people in China and more overseas. With dancing and singing, magic and aerobics, it provides the backdrop to an evening with family and Importantly, as far as the leadership are concerned, a sense of unity across the country. Tonight's gala, the Lantern Festival Gala, bleating out of the flat screen TV on the wall, largely went unnoticed until the skit with the dancing military beauties, which had Lily momentarily transfixed, a spoonful of soup hovering in front of her, forgotten. Propaganda? I asked, waking her up. Yes, she said, it's for the party. The galas first aired in the 80s and, mirroring political developments in other areas across China, they've become increasingly political in the Xi Jinping years. The widespread reach was seized upon by leaders to celebrate what are seen as national achievements, and rousing montages of Mao and Xi, amongst others, became staple parts of the show. As we ate Tong Yuan, we were treated to comedy routines on the theme of the anti-corruption campaign led by President Xi. The gala had piqued my interest, but when I tried to ask what the party wants to achieve with this not-too-subtle propaganda, Lily politely dismissed the question with a shrug and a glance at the elders. No politics was going to be discussed here, even in English, although it was unclear to me whether this was because it's too sensitive or too boring. I have a feeling that the answer was both. Remember the goose we killed earlier? Asked Lily with a nod to the plate in front of me. As midnight approached, phones began to light up with hongbaos, digital red envelopes containing money. The most auspicious number in China is eight, so the luckiest among us received 888 RMB, or 
88 RMB or 8.88 RMB, or if you're like me, 0.88 RMB. The word eight, ba, sounds a bit like the word for making a fortune, fa, and is hence highly sought after where phone numbers and airline numbers are concerned. People want eights in their numbers. Four is the unluckiest number in Chinese because the word four, or si, sounds like si, or death. The two words separated by a different tone. Sometimes buildings omit a fourth floor just in case the lift crashes. But I had other issues. This room was colder than the atmosphere at one of the meetings with the vice-principal. For a while, a luminescent box of heat was fired up beside us, and I leaned over towards it as best I could without making it too obvious. But I was drawn to this device as a flower is to the sun, and I began to feel the icicles on my nose beginning to melt. And then someone switched it off, probably to save money. The evening came to an end, and I was set up in the front room, a stone cell not unlike the living room. The hard bed promised good things for my spine, and a large array of quilts promised to keep me warm, or so I thought. After an initial doze, I was woken by the screaming of nerve endings, calling out in confusion as to how and why they were being punished with banishment to Siberia. In the darkness, I scrambled around for all of my belongings, and worked out a way to apply each one for extra warmth. On went the trousers, the shoes, tomorrow's shirts and the coat. My book, my laptop, and a heavy stone lamp depicting a tiger, all used to pin down the quilt a bit like ten pegs. Finally, the pollution mask was affixed tightly to my mouth, and I lay, fetus-style, breathing like Darth Vader into the uncaring night. The second doze was as brief as the first, as the hour was upon us to unleash fireworks. And they were to go on, and on, and on, until the inevitable heat death of the universe, or some similar time frame. The countryside was brutal. Next time on Stuck in the Middle Kingdom with you, a new semester begins in the school, and we look at working conditions in China. How a new generation, emerging into an unfulfilling working life, is responding to being under the capitalist thumb in a communist country.